Good morning, church. Please turn with me in your Bibles to Exodus 32. While you're doing that, I want to say, express my appreciation to you, first of all, for leaning into this time of crisis with such faith and courage and trying to keep short accounts and and keeping up good relationships. I'm very proud of you as a congregation. I'm very grateful for for the leadership uh, in worship as well. You sometimes have no idea how many adjustments are being made. In the first service, we lost internet. It went out uh, nationwide. So if your pe- people were texting you, that's what happened. It's back up now, I think. So welcome online to those of you who were not here in the first service. And uh, then you have seen the Ellis's names several places in our bulletin. They're not here today, Calvin, Jonna, Carrington, and Caleb. And they had an extended member of the family tested positive for COVID. They have tested negative. They're fine. They're healthy. But they get to quarantine until next Tuesday. And so please pray for them as they're uh, shut up in their house together and still uh, coordinating uh, music in that way uh, from, uh, from, their, uh, from their home. We are grateful for the or, half of the organ being back. We lost the organ totally last week, and uh, now half of it's back. So we had a combination organ-piano. Just grateful for skilled musicians who are able to pivot at a moment's notice. We are all learning flexibility. Seriously, more seriously, even more seriously, I should say, I want to remind you that we have a memorial service for Tim Russell on Tuesday, Pastor Tim Russell, who passed away with uh, the virus early on in the pandemic. And I make the public announcement not only because I want you to pray and pray for Kathy, uh, but but also to remind you that we can only, by social distancing, seat 320 people in this sanctuary. I know there will be a lot of you who want to memorialize uh, Tim's life, but be aware of that limitation here. We can, we can uh, make room for a lot of people on the campus by streaming, but only 320 in this, in this sanctuary. Just be aware of that, and we hope to make uh, that service available in other ways too. Now, please turn with me to Exodus chapter 32. <clears throat> it's a long chapter, but it's important that we practice the reading and preaching of God's Word. And I'll, I'll get your attention by, for, for looking for the gospel in this passage by asking this. What do we do when God does not act the way we want Him to act and when we want Him to act? What do we do? What do we do when God does not act the way we want Him to act and when we want Him to act? The answer to that question is of eternal significance. Look with me, beginning in verse 1 of Exodus 32. When the people saw that Moses delayed to come down from the mountain, the people gathered themselves together to Aaron and said to him, Up, make us gods who shall go before us. As for this Moses, the man who brought us up out of the land of Egypt, we don't know what has become of him. So Aaron said to them, take off the rings of gold that are in the ears of your wives, your sons, your daughters, and bring them to me. So all the people took off the rings of gold that were in their ears and brought them to Aaron, and 
He received the gold from their hand and fashioned it with a graving tool and made a golden calf. And they said, These are your gods, O Israel, who brought you up out of the land of Egypt. When Aaron saw this, he, he built an, an altar before it. And, and Aaron made a proclamation and said, Tomorrow shall be a feast to the Lord. And they rose up early the next day and offered burnt offerings and brought peace offerings. And the people sat down to eat and to drink, but they rose up to play. And the Lord said to Moses, Go down, for your people whom you brought up out of the land of Egypt have corrupted themselves. They've turned aside quickly out of the way that I commanded them. They have made for themselves a golden calf and have worshipped it and sacrificed to it and said, These are your gods, O Israel, who brought you up out of the land of Egypt. The Lord said to Moses, I I have seen this people, and behold, it is a stiff-necked people. Now therefore let me alone that my wrath may burn hot against them and I may consume them in order that I may make a great nation of you. But Moses implored the Lord his God, O Lord, why does your wrath burn against hot against your people whom you have brought out of the land of Egypt with great power and with a mighty hand? Why should the Egyptians say with evil intent did he bring them out to kill them in the mountains and to consume them from the face of the earth? Turn from your burning anger and relent from this disaster against your people. Remember Abraham, Isaac, and Israel, your servants, to whom you swore by your own self and said to them, I will multiply your offspring as the stars of heaven. And all this land that I've promised, I'll give to your offspring, and they shall inherit it forever. So the Lord relented from the disaster that he had spoken of bringing on this people. Then Moses turned and went down from the mountain with the two tablets of the testimony in his hand, tablets that were written on both sides, on front and on the back that were written. The tablets were the work of God, and the writing was the writing of God engraved on the tablets. And Joshua heard the noise of the people as they shouted. He said to Moses, there is a noise of war in the camp. But he said, it's not the sound of shouting for victory or the sound of the cry of defeat, but the sound of singing that I hear. And as soon as he came near the camp and saw the calf and the dancing, Moses' anger burned hot. And he threw the tablets out of his hand. He broke them at the foot of the mountain. He took the calf that they had made. He burned it with fire. He ground it to powder and scattered it on the water and made the people of Israel drink it. Moses said to Aaron, what did this people do to you that you have brought such a great sin upon them? And then Aaron said, let not the anger of my Lord burn hot. You know this people, that they're not, they're set on evil. They said to me, make us gods who shall go before us. As for this Moses, the man who brought us up out of the land of Egypt, we don't know what has become of him. So I said to them, let any who have gold take it off. So they gave it to me. I threw it into the fire and out came this calf. Moses saw that the people had broken loose, for Aaron had let them break loose to the derision of their enemies. Then Moses stood in the gate of the camp and said, Who is on the Lord's side? Come to me. And all the sons of Levi gathered around him. And he said to them, Thus says the Lord God of Israel, Put your sword on your side, each of you. 
And go to and fro from gate to gate throughout the camp, and each of you kill his brother and his companion and his neighbor. The sons of Levi did according to the word of Moses, and that day about 3,000 men of the people fell. And Moses said, Today you have been ordained for the service of the Lord, each one at the cost of his son and his brother, so that he might bestow a blessing upon you this day. The next day Moses said to the people, You have sinned a great sin. And now I'll go up to the Lord. Perhaps I can make atonement for your sin. The Moses returned to the Lord and said, Alas, this people has sinned a great sin. They've made for themselves gods of gold, but now if you will forgive their sin. Ah, But if not, please blot me out of your book that you have written. The Lord said to Moses, whoever sinned against me, I will blot out of my book. But now go lead the people to the place about which I've spoken to you. Behold, my angel shall go before you. Nevertheless, in the day when I visit, I will visit their sin upon them. And the Lord sent a plague on the people because they made the calf, the one that Aaron made. Brothers and sisters, the grass withers and the flower fades. But the word of our God will stand forever. Let's pray together. Holy Spirit, please fall with power in this place. And wherever, wherever your people are gathered around your word, fall in a powerful way to make your word clear to us. We pray, O Lord, that it would come with power and with full conviction accomplishing the purpose for which you sinned. And help us, Holy Spirit, to see Jesus, our great mediator, our advocate, the friend of sinners. We pray it in Jesus' name and for his sake and God's people said together, amen. This chapter is about the great sin of idolatry. Idolatry doesn't really ring clearly to our modern Western ears. We tend to assign that to animistic cultures or to other religions that, that uh, worship graven images or, or idols of wood, things they've crafted with their hands as, as Aaron crafted this calf and plated it with gold. It doesn't, it doesn't ring really clearly to our ears. So we have to understand what the Bible means when it calls a sin idolatry. And it, it means this. It's, the, it's when we turn to something else besides God because we don't want to wait on God and because we don't want to trust in the Lord. We don't want to wait. We don't want to wait on His provision. We don't want to trust in the Lord. And so we create images that promise us there's no waiting in this aisle. And we turn to images that say, you don't have to be vulnerable. You don't have to trust. You can secure what you want right now. And how do we know that's what the Bible teaches? Because that's the way the devil tempted Eve and the way he's been tempting us ever since. Eve saw the fruit which God had forbidden them. They gave them all the other fruit, but she saw the fruit that that it was pleasing to the eye. I can have it now. 
and that it was good to the taste, and I will become like a God. I will not have to trust God any longer. I won't have to be vulnerable. And ever since then, when we sin, that is our sin of idolatry. I don't want to wait on the Lord's provision, on His timing, and I don't want to trust Him as the only one. I don't want to depend upon His provision. I want, I want what I see, and I want it now. It can have disastrous, eternally disastrous consequences, idolatry. It's something like this. When I, in the place I used to live outside of that place, outside of that city a little bit, was a, was a farm, and, and the farmer one day decided he wanted to dig a trench on his property with his own backhoe. He had the machinery. He knew where he needed the, where, where he needed the, the trench, and he was going to go forward with it. All around the county, as there are here, there were, there were billboards that say, advertising a public service, an advocate of public health and safety. It says, call before you dig. Call before you dig. Let, let, me, let us come out and find the utilities and hazards beneath the ground before you start digging. But he didn't want to wait on that service. And whom did he need to trust? It's his property. It's his farm. He knew what was there. So he put his backhoe to work. He lowered the shovel into the ground, and he hit a major gas line. It killed him instantly and set off a catastrophic fire. If we test the Lord with idolatry, which is to commit any sin, anything that He forbids us to do, it is to risk getting burned in this life. And if we remain unrepentant until the end, it is to risk eternal fire. Now, God warns us. He promises that we have an advocate. He warns us away from idolatry in order to turn us to an advocate, to our mediator, even Christ. And He warns us specifically that, that we must wait on Him, that, that we must trust in Him because we see imperfectly. That's the point of verses 1 to 5. We see, yes, we see, but we see imperfectly. You see at verse 1, when the people saw that Moses delayed to come down from the mountain, the people gathered themselves and they concluded... Moses has left us. They looked with their eyes. We don't see Moses. They inferred that if we don't see Moses, he's not coming. They inferred because they didn't see Moses coming, he is not coming, and that means that God is not going to bring him. And so this Moses, they speak about him derisively, this Moses has abandoned us, and that means God has abandoned us. He's abandoned us like Egypt's gods, abandoned them. He toys with the people. He took us into the mountains, into the desert, and now he has abandoned us to make a mockery of us. What's, what's the evidence of their idolatry, that they refuse to wait on God's timing for provision, that they refuse to trust and depend upon God alone for His provision. The, the, the evidence of it is in the way they act. For, for one, they speak, as I said, they speak derisively about their spiritual leader. Verse 1, as for this Moses, it's a, it's a term of dismissal. We'll see it again later as God turns it on them. But this Moses, this Moses, 
They reject God's leader, refuse to wait, refuse to trust. And then they reject their present leader, Aaron, but in a different way. Aaron is to, is to take over from Moses. Well, Moses was their spiritual leader. Now Aaron is their spiritual leader on, on location, and, and, and he is to, they are to listen to him and follow his exposition, their exegesis of, of God's Word and discerning God's voice for them. And what do they say to him? They say, up, get up, and do our bidding. You're not our spiritual leader. You are our hireling. You are our chaplain. Now, you get up and do what I tell you, what we tell you to do, and we're going to tell you we want you to make a God that is more appropriate to us, who is more in keeping with what we want. You make that, you make that God what we want. The result is terribly dangerous. Results in their judgment results in their waywardness. And because Aaron gave into it, it nearly killed him too. Now, what does this say to us? This says to us that we, we are to live by faith, not by physical sight. I just remind you of how Hebrews 11, that chapter on faith, uh, says it in several places. Hebrews chapter 11, verse 3, it says, By faith we understand that the universe was created by the Word of God so that what is seen was not made out of things that are visible. Verse 7, By faith Noah, being warned by God concerning events as yet unseen. And verse 13, These all died in faith, not having received the things promised, but having seen them and greeted them from afar. He makes a distinction between what we see with our eyes, what we intuit with our brains, and what is seen properly by faith. And what we see properly by faith is only that which we see through the spectacles of God's Word, to say it in one word, the gospel. It's not to look at what is around us and say, well, this is what I see, and so this is what I conclude must be done. God is not acting the way He should. I refuse to wait on Him. I refuse to trust in Him. I'm going to act by what I know is best. But it is rather to say, this doesn't make sense to my physical eyes, to my natural disposition, but I am going to force myself to look at God's Word and His perspective first. And I'm going to wait on Him to do His will. I'm going to trust Him to make His provision. And how do we learn what that is? We learn it, of course, in studying the Bible ourselves, And we learn it also by following our spiritual leaders who train us to think biblically, train us to think Christianly. Our spiritual leaders who, take, who study the Word and study it in its original languages and ask the Lord, not only what does this mean, but how does it apply? And our task is to train you to live according to your citizenship in heaven, not according to a political party's dictates or any particular media's dictates or your family's ideas or your, prof your professional conclusions alone. 
by, 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 by putting on a biblical mind, by looking at Scripture and judging reality by Scripture rather than allowing reality to define the way we're going to interpret Scripture, we will be consistently inconsistent. We will never or must never fit cleanly into any one political party's platform. Wherever they happen upon biblical truth, okay, they've hit it right. But it's never, what is my political party's platform, therefore this is what I think. We stand on God's Word alone. We never allow any particular media outlook to tell us what we're going to think and what we're going to do, but rather we look at what is happening, we ask God's Word about it, and it will, it will be consistently inconsistent. We will find ourselves not cleanly on one side or another, but advocating for what is true and what is loving in all directions. We must resist the sin of idolatry by being governed by God's Word as it is revealed in Jesus Christ. And then, secondly, we must, we must, uh, we must resist with all our might idolatry, which is refusing to wait and refusing to trust because we have this propensity to act impatiently. Not only are we broken people whose minds and visions are obscured and need to be, be retrofitted with the spectacles of God's Word, we have wills that act impatiently. We say, I'm going I'm to do what I think is best. I am, gonna, I am not going to be vulnerable to trust in God. I am going to take the bull by the horns, and I'm going to do what I think should be done. That's what we see Aaron doing. You, you, you know, it, it, we have to read very carefully the way the, the, the pronouns occur in this text to see who is, what, who is responsible for what. It wasn't that Aaron made the calf for the people to worship the calf. He did make the calf. He carved a piece of wood. He coated it with gold. But it was the people who said, this calf is the one who brought you out of Egypt. And, and, it, and it seems to be Aaron who, when he saw that they were actually worshiping this thing, that he tries to get ahead of it and turn them back and makes an altar. And he says, we're going to have a celebration, a feast unto the Lord. But they used that even as an act of idolatry. What, was, what could possibly have been in Aaron's mind? It seems to be something like this. Maybe Aaron concluded, you know, maybe this is a halfway house. Maybe I can contextualize the faith for my people and keep them happy and keep God happy. And, and, and so, uh, you know, God, uh, well, He gave us instructions on these, in the law about, uh, about a, a mercy seat on top of the Ark of the Covenant, chair, the wings of cherubim stretching toward each other. And so if God can sit on the wings of angels, surely He can sit on the back of a calf. And, 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 and so this, this, this golden calf will be a kind of teddy bear for them. 
They're just unsettled. They're insecure because Moses has gone away. I need a, a kind of sacrament for them to hold on, something objective they can hold on to, and, and then that will that'll be a catalyst for them worshiping the true God. The problem is God had expressly forbidden the making of, of animals. And when he made that animal, because they were accustomed to worshiping bulls, the, the god Apis in Egypt or Hathor or other Isis, these were gods that had the, the, were like bovine, bovine heads or, or, or horns, and they were the symbol of fertility and strength and power, and they thought, this is what we see we need. And so they turned immediately to it, and they worshiped it. And they even committed what Jesus would later call the blasphemy of the Holy Spirit by taking that which God alone did and attributing it to this false god. But Aaron, supposed to be God's leader, God's leader has to be a combination of a prophetic leader and a priestly leader. Moses was an example of that prophetic leader who told the people what they needed to hear even when they didn't want to hear it, when it offended their sensibilities, when it wasn't consistent with their prejudices. And, and, then, and, then, and then the priest is the one who's supposed to sympathize, empathize with the people and take their concerns to God. That's what Aaron was. And they have to be in balance, but Aaron, so eager to please the people, that was his idolatry. So eager to please the people, he was willing to compromise and to give them what they wanted rather than what they needed. A friend of mine says at times, he says, George, you know, as a leader, we must sometimes love people enough to let them hate us for a while. Moses loved his people and let them hate them for a while. They threw some stones at him every now and then. Aaron wasn't willing. He just, he wanted, to, he wanted to protect himself. And so Aaron effectively dictates to God. He, he says effectively in his, his heart, you know, God, these, you know, these people, these people, I didn't choose these people. You gave me these people. They're stiff-necked. They're difficult. They're, they're powerful. They're, they're manipulative. They forced their way on me. So I did the best I could. I gave them what they wanted, and I was trying to keep you happy at the same time. Effectively, he's saying, God, come down there and sit on this calf that I've built. You do what I tell you to do because you've put me in this pickle. What is the result of that kind of sin, of that kind of idolatry? Aaron expresses it himself, and it's, it's, it's no different from the other people. It's, sin is always irrational. When we give in to our idolatry, it doesn't make us more rational. It doesn't make us more logical. It makes us more foolish. I'm glad you laughed when, when you heard that line where, where Aaron says, I just threw the gold in the fire and out popped this calf. It's illogical, just as our sin is. What is the antidote to that? We appeal to a Savior who understands the world properly and 
tells us truth even when we don't want to hear it. He, he is that Savior who, is, who, who, who gives us that faith described at the beginning of Hebrews 11. It is the evidence of things not seen. You may not see it with your eyes, but the kingdom of God is proven. It is the certainty of things it is the evidence of it is the certainty of things hoped for and the evidence of things not seen. It is it is certain, it is assured. You may not be able to see it with your physical eyes, but Jesus Christ, who embodies the kingdom, who has come in the flesh and who remains at the right hand of the Father, is the one who certifies that what he tells you is true. And you can wait on his timing. You can trust His provision. You needn't give in to those who try to tell you otherwise. And then finally, we, we have to resist idolatry because it is eternally. Well, to give in to idolatry is to suffer eternally. To give in to idolatry and never to repent of it, always to live in this way, I'm going to live according to my eyes and I'm going, to, I'm going to trust my instincts is ultimately to end up in hell because it is, it is the total opposite of faith and we're saved alone by faith. Now, how do we see that in this passage? Verses 11 through 14, 15 to 20, 25 to 29, 31 to 35. Here's how it all unfolds. Moses comes down the mountain. He's coming down the mountain, and God says, these people are acting like the animals they're worshiping down in the valley. Now, Moses, I want you to leave me alone. I don't want you to get in my way. I want you to step to the side. I'm going to annihilate them, but don't fear. I'm going to raise up from you another covenant nation. Moses immediately springs into action and intercedes for them as the mediator. We'll talk more about that in a moment. But God says, I'm going to judge them. His anger burned hot against them. Then Moses finally comes down the mountain, and he actually sees what God had already seen. And Moses is a vicar of that anger. He incarnates that anger, that justice of God. And it's not because he loses his temper that he throws the tablets down. He throws the tablets down as an act of God's judgment, saying, I'm breaking the covenant you have broken it with me, I am breaking it. There's no way for you to access me. There's no hope for your worship. I'm breaking it. And then he put the sword to 3,000 people, presumably who were exposed by drinking the potion with the gold, the gold in it, which is prescribed in another place later on in the Mosaic Law, that if someone was accused of adultery and, and they denied it, they drank a potion, and if they were guilty, they would get sick. If they were innocent, they would say, so apparently this outed the 3,000 who were the ringleaders of the event, and they were put to death by the sword. And God doesn't kill everybody like this every time somebody sins, but occasionally He drops down in redemptive history, and He executes judgment on those who raise their fist against Him. One theologian in the past has called this intrusion ethics, where God takes the ethics of the coming judgment, and he visits them in the present so as to warn people away from judgment. He killed 3,000 this day so that tens and tens and tens of thousands would repent. It's the warning. 
A judgment will come against those who insist on their idolatry. But why wasn't everybody killed? I mean, everybody was complicit in the sin. And Aaron is, we're told by, by Moses later in, in Deuteronomy chapter 9 that God was so angry with Aaron that he wanted to destroy him. Why wasn't he destroyed? The Bible explains because Moses prayed for him. You remember in verses 11 through 14, Moses prayed for God to have mercy on these. And, and it wasn't that he, he wrested judgment away from God. God provoked him to it. There's a reason God says, let me alone so that I'm… He's testing Moses. If he was going to judge them, he didn't need to tell Moses about it. He didn't need to warn him. But God was preparing Moses to be an anticipation of the mediator who is to come. So he's setting Moses up to be the mediator. He says, get out of the way, Moses. Let me have them. And Moses says, no, you can't destroy them. You made promises to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. You'll become a mockery among the Egyptians. That can't happen. And God became compassionate. That's a better translation of relenting. He had compassion. We have a Savior who prays for God to be compassionate to us, but there's more needed. When Moses came down and saw what they had done, he knew that justice was required, so he broke the tablets. God just can't be, just can't be merciful and to the point of sweeping sin under the rug. He is loving, yes, but He is also just. He has to deal with sin justly. Someone has to pay. And so Moses says, I'm going to go back up to the mountain, and I'm going to pray for you that God, that I, and I, and I hope I can make atonement. Verse 30, I can make, 30, I can make atonement for your sin. Carefully chosen word. And then, verse 32, when Moses appears before the presence of God, he speaks this broken sentence. You see it in your text? But now if you will forgive their sin and a long dash. There's no apotheosis. There's no, there's no, there's no completion to that sin, to that sentence. If you will forgive their sin, ah. I know what it takes, he says, in effect, I know what it will take for you to forgive their sin with justice. Someone must pay. So blot me out of your book. There's only one way for you to spare these people and keep your promises to bring the mediator. There's only one way for you to spare these people and, and keep your reputation as the Savior of the world. Blot me out of their book that they might be atoned for. God ignores His plea because despite Moses' best efforts, he could not be the atonement. He himself was a sinner. This prayer was ultimately being made by Christ. Have mercy on them and forgive their sin by blotting me out of your book. 
And God answered that prayer. Where did Moses learn to pray like this? From the same God he learned righteousness. From the same Christ whose riches he loved more than the riches of Egypt. And where will we learn to pray for our culture, for our city? Where will we learn to serve but by looking at Christ? Not by judging the world, but by saying, you see their sin. I acknowledge it's sin. I acknowledge it deserves judgment, but have mercy. And Lord, turn them to Christ, and may they see Christ in me even as I bear their sins while their abuses, while I am taking the gospel to them. I call on you by the authority of the Word of God to turn to Christ and let Him pray and atone for you and to teach you to be a gospel emissary as well. Turn to Him, whether it's the first time or the thousandth time. Come to Jesus. Let's pray together. Lord Jesus, we pray. That you would turn us from the foolishness of our idolatry, humble us, and cast us on you, that we might be those who incarnate the gospel in this world by showing and by telling it. In Jesus' name, amen.